Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health by providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources. Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. For the past two decades, TA Sciences has been dedicated to exclusively creating research-based, clinically tested wellness products that help address telomere shortening through the science of telomerase activation. As you know, anti-aging has been a huge focus of my research, and I am thrilled to have TA Sciences as a sponsor of New Frontiers. Learn about their products, their research, their outlook on anti-aging at tasciences.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am thrilled to be here today with Meta Dyerberg uh, and Dr. Nikki Bundy. Let me tell you about both of these wonder women. Uh, Meta is a digital health innovator and founder of MIMI a specialized care and support program for people with systemic autoimmune diseases and COVID long haul. An economist turned diagnostician, Meta first entered the functional medicine arena after attempting to tackle her own chronic health issues. Uh, her successful results became the basis for MIMI, which uses self-tracking, data analytics, and expert health coaching to help people find their own unique triggers, manage disease flares, and improve their quality of life. Uh, Dr. Nikki Bundy is a licensed board-certified internist and rheumatologist who's passionate about approving care for autoimmune and other chronic diseases. She has 15 years experience as a practicing rheumatologist and clinical researcher and is focused on developing innovative solutions that leverage the growing understanding of the role that lifestyle and diet play in the development and course of autoimmune disease. Her interest in functional medicine and preventative rheumatology came from her experience working with patients as well as her personal struggles with her own health. At MIMI, Dr. Bundy sets clinical and research directions, supervises ongoing clinical studies, serves as a subject matter expert for a number of autoimmune diseases, and builds external collaborations with clinicians, researchers, and other health partners. Uh, Meta and Nikki, welcome, welcome, welcome to New Frontiers. Hey, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I am always pleased to give a shout out to my wonderful sponsors who keep us going, keep us bringing the best minds in functional medicine to you um, month in and month out. I want to give a special shout out to Biotics Research. I've just enjoyed a couple of servings of one of their protein powders, which is delicious, by the way. Uh, we use a lot of it in our office. 
And I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Rupa Health. They make lab testing easy, fabulous, doable for both you, the clinician, and you, the person being prescribed the lab, the patient. Um, consider using Rupa as just a super, super smart solution to all your functional laboratory needs. Thanks again to my wonderful platinum sponsors, Biotics Research and Rupa Health. Nikki, talk to me about the scope of the autoimmunity problem. Sure. And, and this is so important to start with because the burden of autoimmunity is, is already tremendous and it's it's growing. There are millions of people in the US and across the world struggling to live their lives with the very formidable obstacles that autoimmunity presents. And first, let's just talk about numbers. Estimates from several years ago put the number of Americans struggling with one or often more autoimmune diseases at over 23 million. So globally, we're talking about almost 5% of the world's population living with autoimmunity. And as you know, these diseases can be very debilitating. They don't have cures. They're often lifelong afflictions, which require lifelong management. Now add to this an estimated 25 to 31 million Americans who are struggling with long COVID, which as you know, is a poorly understood condition, but it does appear to have autoimmune origins. So we're looking at potentially a doubling or more in the number of people in this country alone with an autoimmune disease just since SARS-CoV-2 hit the scene. Yeah, that's just absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, um, and as I said, even prior to COVID, the number of people with autoimmunity was growing at a very alarming rate. Um, there's research from the NIH that, that came out saying that the prevalence of ANA positivity increased by almost 45% from the late 80s into the 2011, 2012 range. Um, and you know that can't be explained by genetic change alone. Right, 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 right. And before we hit record, you and we were talking a little bit about ANA as sort of a harbinger of, of autoimmunity to come. And there is a rising incidence in it. And I and, and I mentioned to you that two of my family members, uh, a preteen and one of my siblings um, have, you know, new ANA positivity, and there's no incidence otherwise of autoimmunity in my family. Um, and then Meta, you said something really, I'd love you, I'd love to just capture it on the recording regarding uh, what you're seeing with ANA and its connection to, to COVID. Sure, and actually just, just define ANA because we didn't do that yet. So just define that first. Sure, I can do that. So ANA stands for anti-nuclear antibody. And these are antibodies that instead of being targeted against foreign invaders, viruses, bacteria, maybe parasites, they actually target self-tissue. Um, it's named ANA, anti-nuclear, because the, the proteins or protein complexes that are typically recognized by these antibodies are, are in the nucleus, or they, at least they've, they've come from the nucleus and are complex with DNA. And as you say, Kara, they are markers of an autoimmune propensity in some people and in other people like that they're they're when that comes about, they already have a Frank disease. And Meta, you know, you just, you threw out some pretty astonishing findings recently in New York. Yeah, I, I think what, what we are seeing is that hospitals who have had a tendency, as, as Nikki mentioned, around 
ANA measurements have have recently stopped doing them because they saw that more than half were actually testing positive and the healthcare systems don't have the funds to go on with all the testing that's necessary upon that discovery. And so what is a requirement now is that you have all of the physical manifestations of any of these autoimmune diseases in order for the doctor to actually test ANA. And so from our point of view, what that means is that we're actually masquerading the problem, right? We've seen a rise in ANA over the years, but as we've embarked on this COVID journey, if we stop measuring it, then it's actually not going to go away. It's just going to sort of be um, this sort of sleeping animal that will be awakened. And that, and that I'm actually quite terrified about. So this is this 50% rise in ANA is all post is a post COVID phenomena. So we've seen the we've seen the rise even before COVID. Um, there's been, you know, significant rise year by year over the last decade. But with COVID, it has completely um, sort of um, elevated the the positivity around ANA. Yeah, the really abrupt, dramatic rise that we're yeah. seeing is, is wow. COVID related. You yeah. know, as a functional provider, it just we we order ANA. You know, as a first line inquiry, and our all our patients is often as we're ordering a CBC or a chem screen, but it just adds a a, a layer of urgency to that. I mean, we absolutely have to be looking for it and keeping our eyes open as you know as you suggested meta rather than shutting our eyes waiting for uh, you know the for disaster something to go away yeah. <laughs> exactly right right yeah. right well and, so I, and I, I think that's the whole point of my knee right is that we we are we are seeing and i'm, I'm saying women it's it's women and men but it's over 80 percent women that are struggling with autoimmune disease spending an average five to seven years to get diagnosed once they're diagnosed, first-line intervention is methotrexate. And these are women who's often not had children yet. So it's at an enormous expense. And only if they fail this chemo drug will they be offered immunosuppressant or specialty pharma medication. And that fails three out of four. So now you've had women who's been on a 10-year journey and they've not had any relief of symptoms. And that is simply just not okay. Well, you know what? You need to talk about your own journey. I've heard your story before. It's one of the most incredible. And I've heard a lot of very powerful stories in functional medicine, but yours is extraordinary. And Nikki, I I look forward to hearing yours as well. And it's really what prompted you to unite and create the extraordinary entity that is MIME. So share with me, you know, both of you a little bit around your story and the creation of MIME and, and, and what MIME does. Yeah. So, so Miami came about really as, as, a, as a personal problem. Um, I had had my own journey with autoimmunity for over a couple of decades. Um, I spent half of my 20s going from doctor to doctor. And then the second half of my 20s, I accumulated six autoimmune diagnoses and was giving myself injections and, and struggling with just everyday life. And so I was really um, set out to be a, a chronic patient for life um, when in my mid-30s, my, one of my many specialty doctors um, told me they had great news. And upon arriving at the hospital, they proceeded to tell me 
I wasn't going to die in the quote unquote immediate future. And this didn't really live up to my expectation of great news. And yeah. so my first question was, how are we like, what are we going to do about my process? And I was told they were happy with my numbers. And to this date, I'm so thankful that that was the, the sort of um, emphasis that they, that they talked about, because as an economist, um, I went from being sort of a disempowered patient to an empowered human being when I took matters into my own hands. I knew very little about healthcare, so I literally just applied process optimization to my own body as it was a closed circuit computer system. And I started out with the good old like food journaling. But then, and... but you dove into your numbers. It was that. So they said yeah, your, yeah. they said the magic word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> numbers. Yeah. Boom. Don't, don't, that you don't, can do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was where I felt comfortable. So I basically translated my life into numbers. I had my blood work drawn every three to four weeks. I had every possibly metric I could get my hands on. And I, I basically started, you know, journaling, realized probably within a week or two that there was no rhyme or reason in how I was looking at the data. So as, as an economist, you have the Excel spreadsheet and it became my best friend. I translated everything into Excel spreadsheets and realized that I needed sort of the metadata. I needed the timestamps. I needed the locations. And in a brief four and a half months, I was able to prove out that I wasn't a cardiac patient. And I had done, you know, weekly EKGs, blood thinners, cholesterol lowers since I was 24. And so I thought if I can get rid of this diagnosis, I can probably get rid of all of it. And I literally A-B tested my way. I built some algorithms to look at the causality between what I was doing and how it was affecting my symptoms. And under the thesis of doing a little more of what was good and a little less of what was bad, I was hoping to sort of land myself in remission. What instead happened was I discovered that I was severely triggered by one thing. And that discovery really changed my whole view actually on autoimmune disease and, and how our bodies are misunderstood. And so when I had sort of, you know, normalized my blood work, reversed my symptoms and, and gotten out on the other side, it, it got stuck in my head that there was another way of viewing this. And of course, I like anyone who's gone through a transformation and have had their sort of like come to Jesus moment. I went back to my doctors with my laptop and all the data, and it was just too overwhelming. None of them had the time or even the desire to really take a look at it. And so I had just started my last company at the time and was really sort of getting obsessed with this problem. And so I started, you know, having friends of friends or friends of friends, grandmothers, sons, dogs, neighbor come to me and say, hey, we heard about what you did. Could you help us? And I was able to, over a period of four years, do the same for 70 other people with different autoimmune diagnoses. And then we came together and started My Me, really in the foundation that we are not a replacement of the physician. We are a tool to help people identify what is it that's triggering them and their immune systems to overreact and attack itself. And how do we essentially alleviate 
the physicians by being a tool in their tool belt uh, when it comes to triggers and um, precision nutrition. Uh, it's, it's such an extraordinary and powerful and important and you know impactful story. I mean, I'm just <laughs> just I'm so glad to know you and so glad you're here and you're on our side and doing this work. It's amazing. Tell me what the one thing is. I mean, what turned out to be your trigger after four months of data capturing? Chicken. Chicken. Isn't that astonishing? Chicken. Wow. So the funny the funny thing is that when I first like Obviously, I got it wrong a lot before I got it right because I had no idea what I was doing. Sure. But when I realized that it was chicken and I started you know, working with others and seeing that their triggers were really, in, in many cases, quite random, I realized that we have a system where it's the standardized healthcare system is very based on something working for the majority. And even with celiac disease, where we have a straight line causality with gluten, you are in a position where I think it's four out of five is undiagnosed, despite the fact that there is a diagnosis and there is blood work. And there's quite severe side effects of not adhering to the no gluten when you're celiac. And so I thought, wow, with billions of people in the world, who's to say that there's not a lot of other people that have similar reactions whether it's to enzymes, the proteins, whatever it is, um, but we just don't even have the label and the test yet. Yeah. And so that was really the explorative work that we started with Miami and have successfully now taken thousands of people through to figure out that some people can be out of wheelchairs by eliminating oxalates or you know other things that really would never have come up as the thing that could change life. Extraordinary. That's just such an extraordinary story. And so, of course, they've taken this lens, folks, and they've applied it to long COVID. And of course, then there's a strong long COVID autoimmunity connection. And I, um, we're going to circle back and talk about what, you know, this lens has um, landed on. What are some of the patterns they've seen with this long COVID phenomena? But uh, we'll, we're going to go through a few other questions first. Nikki, I want to hear your story as well. And, and, and you know, what you brought you to Miami. Sure, sure. So, so really, you know, my journey to, to get me here where I am today with Miami um, was was driven by both some professional things going on and, and then personally. So, um, you know, I was very traditionally trained in in medicine and and, you know, um, you know, practicing in an, in an academic setting, general rheumatology. And I had this growing uneasiness about the traditional autoimmune disease treatment model. Um, I loved that I had a growing number of effective drugs to help my patients, but I saw that these drugs, they certainly were not a panacea. I had non-responders, even to two, three, four drugs. And I had those who did achieve low disease activity, right? So like Meta said, the numbers looked good, but they were still really suffering with a host of symptoms that weren't responding like their numbers did. And I thought, you know, the world of diabetes and, and cardiovascular disease care, they had already firmly incorporated diet and lifestyle management into their standard of care. And I had countless patients asking me what they could do on their own to help themselves. And I really had no answers. There was nothing in my traditional training that gave me the tools I needed to answer these questions with any kind of authority. So in the face of this unease, uh, I got sick. So among other symptoms, I developed uh, a Raynaud's phenomenon. I had a crushing fatigue that no amount of sleep would fix. 
So I, uh, I, I did what I hate doing and I went to the doctor, um, <laughs> And, you know, ultimately I was found to have a positive ANA, a positive RNP, anti-RNP antibody. I had a low white count of two. My platelets were around a hundred and I had low complement C3 and C3, uh, C3 and C4, C4. So, uh, you know, I had a diagnosis of basically a lupus-like disorder versus an undifferentiated connective tissue disease. And I started Plaquenil. Um, that's what I would have done for a patient sure. after about six or eight months you know, I felt no better. My labs hadn't budged. And that's when through a series of, of events, I ended up seeing a fabulous doctor at Cleveland Clinic's Division of Functional Medicine. His name is Nate Bergman. And he really opened my eyes to a world of research going on about how food and activity, stress, sleep affect health, particularly immune related disorders. So I embarked on healing myself and it took well over a year uh, with all the difficulties of a traditional elimination diet, lots of blindfolded trial and error, but I found my triggers and I'm happy to say that my labs have normalized. I'm off Plaquenil now for years. Uh, and you know, even better, I have my vitality back. And, and once I got in that place, I, I was introduced to Meta and I knew that Miami was, uh, where I belonged. That's, uh, that's such great. That's also a great and inspiring story. And, and, Yes, I'm glad that you were able to connect with Nate. He's he's a really good doctor. He's fabulous. Yeah. It, let me just ask you. You know, I, I want to just ask you about you know the both of you have normalized labs. By the way, before I say that, let me say there's an IB there's an IBD an individual with IBD in our practice who whose trigger was also chicken, but I can't say that I've encountered it much. You know, it tends to be something we think of as being more um, hypoallergenic, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. It's, it was a big player in her IBD. Normalized labs, it's, both it's, of you. It's also, it's actually quite interesting because my brother's kid at the age of three uh, got juvenile arthritis and was wheelchair bound. And of course, as a family, we all sort of went all in on figuring out what was going on. And, and after doing Miami, it was clear that his biggest triggers were eggs. And so we are also now sort of wondering, hmm. is there some sort of genetic positioning to this being that we don't understand why chicken and eggs are actually the triggers um we have no idea but i think what my knee does is it makes an observation it's able to replicate the process and, and figure it out but we don't have all the answers to why yes. and so it might be a decade or two before we have all those answers but we need to at least start peeling this onion to get somewhere in terms of understanding why is it that we still describe this disease with the use with the use of the word confusion in it? Yes, yes. So both of you have normalized your labs, um, and I and I I see that in practice. I don't see it in all the cases. I mean, what what do you say about that? Is it reasonable for somebody with um, autoimmune positive labs to expect to drop or clear them? So I think you know what what. The answer to that really brings up in my mind, the concept of stages of autoimmune disease. We're very comfortable in the medical world talking about stages of cancer, right? But we we don't typically talk about stages of autoimmune disease. Um, and I think that is actually um, at the expense of, of patients. Um, and I know Meta shares this. So I, I think that the answer to your question, Kara, is it depends on what stage somebody starts to intervene 
um, you know, in their life. I, there's so much literature now about patients going into remission on biologics, right? Yes. And but now that now that you know we've had enough time on biologics that people are actually being able to come off of them and be in remission, but we see that they often flare up again, right? So what what my hope is is that if we combine this lifestyle medicine with these really powerful medications, that's when we'll be able to achieve really sustained remission. Amazing. I think it's I think it's really important to say that there's no cure for autoimmune disease. That is really, you know, unfortunately the culprit of all of this. That there is, even though I normalize my blood work, I've been symptom free for a decade. I promise you, I could eat my way into a flare very easily. My body still has the susceptibility. Um, and and while I agree with um, Nikki on the staging, we also see people who have what we so internally we use staging quite a lot in, in our work the 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 patient with stage four who has organ involvement we see sometimes if the triggers are clear that they can get full remission and normalization of blood work as well and that's when there's organ involvement and people have reduced kidney function and stuff they can also reclaim in those cases though it really depends on i, I remember terry walls once said with an MS patient, it's almost like, are they still on their way up the mountain or have they crossed over and now they're sort of like free pedaling down fast? Mm -hmm. How how far along are people in order for them to sort of be peeled back up? Yes. And, and I think that's really the key here is let's not have people walk around five to seven years undiagnosed, yes. ignoring how people feel just because we don't have a system that understands how to measure it. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm just thinking about some of the, you know, late stage RA patients, rheumatoid arthritis patients that we see and how heartbreaking that is. Yeah, because you know, there's joint destruction and yeah, and yeah I know it's, um, I think that a lot of that is avoidable again. And it's, it's it, certainly the medications are are life-changing for so many people, but but it's 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 incomplete. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, you know, you've, you've talked about a number of the medications out there um, as a piece of the picture, uh, perhaps not the whole result of the whole intervention, well, not the whole intervention, actually, um, from a functional lens. Um, and they may not always make patients uh, symptom free. Hi, everybody. I am thrilled to be introducing you to Pendulum Therapeutics, the first and only brand to offer Acromantia mucinophilia, a keystone strain for gut health in a daily probiotic. Acromantia is a unique probiotic strain found in your GI tract that helps with gut lining, and it's vital for gut health. Gut microbiomes change due to genetics, disease, epigenetics, lifestyle, diet, and we might lose our acromancia. It's not available in any foods. Pendulum manufactures and packages this patented strain into a simple probiotic capsule taken once a day with a meal. And for New Frontiers listeners, use code KF20 to subscribe and save 20% on your first month of Pendulum Acromancia. Get it at pendulumlife.com. That's pendulumlife.com. But let's just, let's pivot over to long COVID. Um, 
whether you're seeing any of these medications work with long COVID. Um, what kind of symptoms are you seeing in your autoimmune population uh, that overlap with those with long COVID? So, so I guess we're let's talk about long COVID and what you're seeing. You know, medications think, and perhaps other interventions. So I'll leave the medication part to the doctor in the room. But um, from from my perspective, what's fascinating is if you take the top twenty autoimmune symptoms across our population, there's an overlap in seventeen of twenty. So the 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 place wow. where we have a difference is really in the dysautonomia and then in in the breathing, the lungs. Um, but when you when you look beyond that, the main complaints are still fatigue, brain fog, a lot of the, the similarities. Um, where they differ is that when you look at the profile of an autoimmune patient, they have sort of simmered. They, they typically have been on their journey. They've slowly been accumulating symptoms and they've been getting used to quote unquote their new circumstance. With the COVID long haulers, they got the same symptomology overnight. So they, when, if you look at sort of like the questionnaires, um, they really have extremely poor management of own health. They have a lot of places where if you just look at the numbers and, and, and we admit to the first couple of months in, in the spring of 2020 being sort of terrified at what we were seeing in the data because the COVID long haulers looked like they were much, much, much sicker than the autoimmune population. And what we found was that it was almost like the scenario where you boil a frog in cold water versus throwing it in hot water. It, wow. it was simply the perception of how their situation was that was very different because it was an immediate change. Yeah. Um, what our belief system was from the beginning was that this is an acceleration of pre-autoimmunity. And we saw in the early cohorts from Mount Sinai, where we have the preferred partner in their long COVID um, work, that it was very clearly autoimmune. Um, and so that was really why it was um, easy for us to start working on how to get to the root cause of these issues from the beginning, because there was such an enormous overlap in symptomology and the way that it was being displayed. When that's being, you know, sort of under the, the microscope, what really happened next were, were, was fascinating because it didn't look at all like what we had seen in, in, in autoimmunity, because we saw things like the vegans and vegetarians, for example, they tanked, they were just much worse off. And instead of saying, oh, they weren't managing their, their dietary style correctly, we said, well, let's look at the whole population. And so instead we said, what is the grams of protein that people are having on intake on, in a general basis? And we found that it didn't matter whether you were carnivore or vegan. What matters was grams of protein on a daily basis. Mm. And so at that point you have an intervention, right? Medical um, protein shakes were immediately put in as an intervention to make sure that people got the protein in levels up. And so a lot of the things that we saw that differed is that in like, obviously long COVID patients are similarly to autoimmune patients in of ones. You, you don't have like one, a one size fits all, but what we did see was trends 
histamine hugely um you know risen among a large part of the population so we saw more that there was sort of trending factors which of course in the early days made our strides towards helping people a lot easier um what we are seeing today though is that the covid long haulers that we see are extremely complicated cases they typically have organ involvement across a whole array of of organs they have um you know debilitating um, fatigue brain fog and so on and so they're not necessarily easy patients to unravel and and figure out how to work with and there's some we can't work at all with like we will work with them but we can't necessarily help them um but in general we see that um identifying triggers and understanding how what goes into producing the symptomology is is quite similar so it's like they move to like overnight they have a late stage autoimmune condition or multiple conditions literally imagine waking up with lupus overnight it's just just it's just mind blowing i'm so i'm just so sorry to hear that what is the incidence of long covid do you have any numbers yeah, I mean, it's so widely variable that the, the, the estimates are between 25 and 31 million Americans, right. you know, so, I mean, but I've seen, I've seen numbers, you know, that 50% of people, 5% of people after COVID, you know, a lot of that yeah. depends on, we, we haven't, we haven't really come to a case definition yet. Right. Um, some, some, places say that if you have persistent symptoms after 12 weeks for some it's 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 28 weeks right it's six months so i think these numbers are going to be widely variable but you suffice it to say that you know this is not a small minority right right and you did give us those numbers earlier so my yeah. apologies for for, for asking no, that but, question but I, again but, but i also think that when we actually start stacking these numbers right if we look at one in five americans have an autoimmune disease the latest ANA numbers is from 2012. And at that point, it was 41.6 million Americans. And then you put, if we take the lowest official number, 25 million long haulers on top, you start stacking that up. And it looks an awful lot like the pre-diabetes numbers. Yeah. And that's a third of the population. And yeah. so we, we are sitting, unfortunately, on a problem here that is completely overlooked. The only upside, and this is going to sound horrible because there's so many people struggling from long COVID, the only upside for autoimmunity is that long COVID put high beams on this disease, and there's more research going into this field in the last 24 months than in the last 24 years. Right, right. What do you see, um, what kind of labs do you routinely see high in, in long COVID? You know, and we can get more into this, Kara, but we we don't see a ton of labs because we, to work with folks, we don't always need them. In fact, we very rarely need them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and we can talk about our process a little bit more, but, um, you know, so we, we're not really collecting a bunch of labs. Um, what I would say is I want to go back to something that we talked about before, Meta, you know, you mentioned that there are people that we can't help. And, and I think that, that, that stems from the fact that um, consistent with everything we've been saying, we don't really know enough about long COVID 
to say what's underlying the pathogenesis in every case. And so for those people who either have uh, viral persistence or they have had micro thrombus, right? Then, then we're talking about a different set of people than those who have had autoimmunity triggered by this virus, whether it's molecular mimicry or bystander effect, right? Right. Um, so, and I think, so, and I, that goes back into the, what kind of labs we're going to be seeing. We've already talked about the huge number of ANAs and it's not just ANA. So people with, with, with COVID have been found to have a host of different autoantibodies, um, both in the acute phase. And then also when they, when they've looked at these patients weeks and weeks out, there are, there's development of new autoantibodies and persistence of some of the ones that they that they saw earlier. And when you mentioned meta earlier that you see that there's that there's a strong histamine component, is this a clinical diagnosis or are you actually measuring histamine or some other biomarker? So so there's there's a, a duplex here because there's both us seeing people overreacting um, to histamine inducing foods. Yeah. But also uh, with the low COVID long hauls, a lot of times people bring an enormous amount of labs as sure. they as they enter the the program. I think where it becomes interesting is also when we are talking, and, and I'm fully aware that I'm the economist in the room right now. But when when we initially started up working with Mount Sinai, one of the things that we observed was that over seventy two percent of the low COVID population was suffering from thrush. And, you know, as you know, it's sort of been a thing of the age of HIV, but not really since. And all of a sudden we've seen these numbers in this. And the question really was, can we prove it? Is, is all of the doctor's notes actually giving this diagnosis? And I thought to myself at the time, I thought, wow, think about how we view the world and these patients when we're always sort of thinking about the proof point, because I don't think anyone, like any any normal person walking around, don't even know what thrush is. Mm. They wouldn't, it hadn't been described in the media yet. It wasn't something that people came in and, and sort of mentioned. It was something that doctors either identified and put in their journals, or because we were seeing such high numbers, we had them tested for. And and I, I, I really found that we, we are sort of on this journey of trying to find the truth and statistical significance. But a lot of times we sort of miss the point of body signaling and, and where people really are on their journeys. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Nikki, I just want to talk a little bit about what you're, you know, just earlier you brought up the fact that it, you know, there's, there's, it's diff. There's some patients or medicine, you know, some folks are not able to help as much as you want to medications that you're, that you're seeing effective in long COVID or, um, yeah, you know, other ways. Oh, and, and I also want to ask you about vaccines, um, and whether, whether that seems to be, whether they seem to be protective against long COVID as, as been, as has been proposed. Sure. So, as part of our program, we don't prescribe, but we have had patients coming in um, who have either already been on the host of different things that have been tried out there, right? So on steroids, 
receive monoclonal antibodies. Um, and then more recently, we've seen people on the JAK inhibitor, baricitinib. Um, we've seen people on the IL-6 inhibitors uh, and, and they are, you know, I, I mean, these are people who were obviously pretty seriously ill um, and they survived. So what, you know, there's, there's not a ton to say yet about, you know, was it strictly because of these medications? Um, but we'll learn a lot more in the next, I believe, you know, several months as we are able to, to look at all this data. So from our perspective, in addition to the information that Meta shared about finding these triggers, you know, we're also finding, because actually, as she uh, also mentioned, we're seeing a lot of autonomic dysfunction. So we're seeing that the techniques that we use to stimulate the vagus nerve, right, and stimulate the parasympathetic system, um, those things that are familiar to you, Kara, the, the humming and the singing, um, the breathing exercises that get that parasympathetic tone up, those have been very, very helpful. Um, we focus a lot on the slow return to activity. Um, it has been, you know, uh, that's very eye-opening for us how exercise uh, intolerant these folks are. So that's been a real big part of our intervention, again, along with finding these triggering factors. Wow. Uh, and the triggering factors are only actually this impactful because for many, it's an acceleration of pre-autoimmunity. So when we have an, a long COVID patient land at Miami and their disease symptoms, oftentimes the next question is, well, actually, I've had these lingering joint pain for a couple of years, or I've had this. And so it becomes very clear that these patients were already on a journey. It mm. was just accelerated. And I think, you know, we've always known that viruses and infections were the main trigger for autoimmune disease, but it used to be Lyme's disease and Epstein-Barr. And all of a sudden we've had a hundred million Americans infected by COVID and we're seeing we're unfortunately seeing this rise in autoimmunity as, as Nikki mentioned earlier, but unfortunately I think it's gonna be the next 24 months that we're gonna see this rise continue. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's just really beneficial that you're in the trenches looking at this through a prism of, you know, so many different vantage points and crunching your data and being able to uh, observe trends and, you know, hopefully really help us all um, diet and lifestyle in, in, in you just, I want to move back to, um, to talking about autoimmunity, although I, I encourage, you know, just the, the broader topic of autoimmunity, but anything that you can pin to long COVID that would be beneficial. I mean, so you're, what kind of evidence is there in the literature to support diet and lifestyle in general, but specifically your work and I know you've conducted some of your own research. We have, we have. So, so, you know, I'll speak about some of the, the just again, general literature out there that I find really compelling. And then we can talk about uh, a couple of things that we've published. Um, you know, uh, there are tons of people working on this now. Um, I really liked a study that came out of UCSD. Uh, Dr. Uh, Gumma was the, lead on this. And what she did was she took 
22 patients with RA and she put them on what she called an itis diet, right? So, it, so an anti-inflammatory diet, but really it was um, very tailored. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a kind of the run of the mill. She, she thought it out very carefully and they continued to take their meds unchanged. And about half of the patients experienced a 50% improvement in the joint pain and swelling, as well as subjective measures, including fatigue, um, sometimes really just in a few days on the diet. Some people even went into complete remission. Now that leaves 50% who didn't improve, right? And that speaks again to what we do at Miami, right? So I have no doubt that there are some general dietary recommendations out there that would be helpful for the large majority of people with autoimmunity. However, what that doesn't take into account are these individual sensitivities, right? Who would ever take chicken out of a healthy diet, right? When I was in school, we chicken, it, you would use a, for a very, very austere anti-inflammatory, very short-term elimination diet. Chicken would be chicken and rice, I think was our, was what we would prescribe. Yeah. So we, of course. And so, and it's so also, it's also why I've failed every elimination diet I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 And, and, and so, you know, there was an, another study that uh, also in RA patients, so much of this work has been done in RA and they put people on what they called a, a, a privative diet. And so that excluded meat, gluten, all dairy products um, versus the controls in that study who ate a balanced diet um, that included those foods. Um, and they looked at pain on a visual analog scale and the SF36 for quality of life. And in the privative diet group, um, you know, the, the things, things did improve, right. Um, although they, they also measured DAS 28, which is, it was just a measure of disease activity in RA, uh, that didn't really move, but again, like the, the patient reported outcomes improved, right. But it's hard to know without a much deeper dive. Well, what is it about that diet no. that, that helps people? right? Yeah. Was, it, was it excluding meat? Was it excluding gluten? And from our work, what we'd argue is it was different things for different people. Yes. Right, right, right. And well, going back to your um, your point earlier, there are some things that you would omit from a diet that would help, that, that would help a, a large swath of those with an autoimmune process. So, so I, th I think one, one thing that we've heard over and over again, it's hugely promoted, is that autoimmune patients should stop gluten and dairy. And we generally get those patients who got sicker when they were given this advice. And <laughs> I think we just had we just had a client go on, I think it was Lupus LA, but one of these po podcasts who shared that prior to Miami, she had been by her doctors given this diet. And as she was changing her diet, she was just getting sicker and sicker. And going through Miami, she found out that her two triggers were potatoes, so starch, which is in a lot of the products you eat when you replace gluten with gluten-free products. Yes. And um, fructose. And so she had actually on that diet been eating a lot of sugars. She was a baker instead of the baked goods. So she'd been replacing refined sugar with fructose and she'd been replacing the gluten with potato starch. And so she tanked. Today, she's back to baking because gluten and sugar is not her issues. She has dietary issues, but not those. And so 
I think that's where it comes fascinating because we have had for generations this idea that there's good diets and bad diets and then the avocado is in and then it's out. Like mm -hmm. it's sort of like these trends, but what we are seeing is that those trends do not apply to our more complex rheumatic and neuroautoimmune disease um, people. Fascinating. Yeah, in you know, the Institute for Functional Medicine, um, you know, it, I teach in the immune module and we introduce elimination diets. We actually do a pretty good job at you know, running through a variety of intolerances and so forth beyond the standard elimination. But, you know, when we're advising clinicians transitioning into this model, what, where to start, it's, you know, do a simple gluten and dairy elimination. And we do. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we all have plenty of cases where we can. It works, you know, right? But you're going to pick up people, right? I mean, we could we could go on forever and talk about you know the science behind the gluten, but 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 that approach is is still going to leave a lot of people eating their triggers and maybe even maybe even as Meta said, actually eating more of their triggers. Yes, it's extraordinary. What? So you guys are doing this 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 data crunching to identify these triggers. Are are you aware of any labs that might? capture them? I mean, you know, there are um, labs looking at IgG and, and complement or yeah. IgG4 or IgE, et cetera. There's labs looking at um, flow cytometry, you know, cell, uh, white blood cell size changes, you know, with after exposure to different foods. I mean, are any of these tools in your experience uh, or observation useful? I, or do I they all have their limits? Yeah. Yeah. They, Kara, I think that's it. They have their limits. Um, and you know, this is coming from, from several ends of one, right. Some anecdotes and, and I, you know, had a, a fairly good sized handful of people come through that have had these, as you say, IgG complement level, uh, food sensitivity tests. And, um, I, I, I think that where they have value is if they come back with strong positivity on one or two foods, right. I think it's it's certainly worth taking those foods out, eliminating and seeing how it does, right? And then the other case where I think it's helpful is where, um, and that was in my case, I reacted to everything. I mean, it was ridiculous. My my dad, if if I had followed, you know, the number of things that I should eliminate because I had reactions to, I wouldn't be eating, you know, three things. And so what that says to me is, you know, my my gut was in a bad place. I had leaky gut. And my immune system was just so revved up from these antigens, you know, getting into the crossing the epithelial border and getting into the lamina propria where all those immune cells are living. Um, so, so yes, I think those tests can be helpful, but when they, they're, I don't think that they're always telling you the kind with the kind of precision that we'd like that yes this food in particular is something you're going to need to eliminate certainly not for the long term because i think again in the cases where you yeah. are reacting to so much right they can they can heal their gut exciting news the younger you companion book better broths and healing tonics will be out this november i'm jill shepherd davenport a board certified nutrition specialist and along with Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, crafted a resource of broths, tonics, infusions, even mains, sides, and desserts, packed with the epinutrients you've come to know and love. If you pre-order, there are loads of exclusive access goodies we'll be sending your way. 
And this is a fit for you, regardless of your dietary approach, your age, health history, or dietary preferences. We've got you covered. Order today at your local bookstore or on Amazon. Right. Yes. They can tell their gut and you guys as functional docs, right. Have great, you know, gut healing protocols. Um, and they can tolerate some of those foods again. I was just about to say, I think that's actually the, the fascinating part is once you identify the true trigger in an autoimmune patient, they can oftentimes start reintroducing things that they have been severely allergic to since childhood. Like a good example is like peanut allergies grown men and women who've had peanut allergies their entire life once we identify their triggers they can reintroduce peanuts and other nuts and that's fascinating because it, it does say something about the accumulative load that's such a um provocative thing to say i mean clearly they're working with i'm hoping they're allergist when they oh, try the peanut we would never we would right of that's course, huge Right. We would, we would never have, have people do that without very, we very, always, very close we support. always hear about it in hindsight, right? Yeah. Like three yeah. months after the program, people are like, you know, my doctor said so-and-so and here we are or whatever, but, but it's, it's, it's fascinating to me to see the journeys and, and see how many things we don't understand yet. And I think yeah. that's why COVID was so perfectly aligned with Miami because We've built a platform for unraveling unknown causality. And yeah. I don't think there's anywhere in the medical realm at the moment where there's more questions than answers than in long COVID. And so, and, and maybe I, I should just sort of cover what Miami really is because- but Let me, let me just make, I want, before you go okay. back there, because that actually was my next question. I, I want to know what you're doing and, 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 and also how we can access it. There's certainly a lot of clinicians listening to this podcast really feeling probably I don't know if inadequate is the right word but are you just excited about the possibility of using this this tool that you've that you've created but before we go there I just want to underscore this extraordinary point that you're observing in your data you know we're dealing again you know it's teaching in the immune module at IFM I'm thinking about allergies we we had a we have a focus on allergic disease here in this practice, and we're using you know um, some pre- fairly sophisticated interventions, I think. But what you're what, what you're saying, Meta, is that there may be something more root cause. There may be a triggering exposure that has, at a glance, is not a cross-reactive protein. It's not in the same family. You know, it may not be. It's not necessarily intestinal permeability. It could be. It, it could be something that looks at that, that we just wouldn't even consider clinically. But once that's removed, or we wouldn't be able to identify it on lab tests. But you. But once this trigger, once this underlying, you know, once the big issue is pulled, then their immune system normalizes. Their immune system calms down. Whatever arm of the immune system is turned on, be that you know, IgE, TH2, or, you know, others. Right. right. And these are, you know, again, these are, these are, these are anecdotes. These are one-offs. I mean, but, but certainly there is compelling. enough that should be looked at. It is very compelling. Yeah. It's really compelling. It's huge. Um, okay. So with that, just out of the way, let's talk about what, you know, what it is you're doing over there at Miami. Yeah, so, so, so you obviously, you know, it's a clinically validated program and, and, and we've proven to reduce autoimmune symptoms in over 90% of the members, but what the approach really consists of is 
cut down to basics three key elements. It's an easy to use mobile app that uses the snap to track feature. So all you need to do is either take a quick photo of what you're eating, or if you're logging symptoms, for example, like let's say a runny nose or joint pain, it's tailored to you. So all you do is tap a button. And so the idea is that it maximum takes a couple of minutes a day to give us enough data to make the causality. We basically then take your body signaling and we turn that noise into understanding by pinpointing causalities between what you do and how it affects your symptoms using our proprietary technology. And as Nikki said earlier, studies show that 80% of the immune system is determined by these lifestyle and environmental factors. But I think third and perhaps most importantly, our approach is led by certified coaches that can translate these machine insights into a personalized plan. Everyone on our clinical care team have reversed their own autoimmune disease like Nikki and I. And through these weekly one-on-one sessions, our team can help people avoid the triggers by guiding them through these small and doable changes over time. And so I am a strong believer that the diagnostic part of identifying a trigger while hugely important and valuable, it's nothing without behavior change. And so what Miami's technology helps identify triggers in as little as eight weeks, the, the traditional way of telling someone, let's say, you can't have um, stone fruits. Well, what does that mean? But actually going through people's diet and show them what wines can they have versus what can't they have and, and helping them incorporate it because it's women who has jobs, husbands, kids, they have lots of responsibilities. And oftentimes we put ourselves at the bottom of that laundry list. And so we need things that can be done in an easily manageable way. Because at first, when you've gone through my mean, we've now told you, you have to change something, whether it's diet or something more complex, like gluten or eggs or whatever can be in everything. um, We are actually making your life more complicated, not less complicated. Where, Where we win is because the price is right. If you can all of a sudden pick up your kids, do eight loads of laundry or get out of that wheelchair that you've been bound to because you take out one or two things of your diet, then all of a sudden it becomes worth it. But yes. initially, it's actually hard to wrap your head around. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so that coaching you know, needs to be exquisite and very supportive. I'm sure the app is really helpful as well. And so our app is really built, I, I call it zero to one. It's like you come in and it, it's almost barely existing, the app. But the app is evolved around you and your journey. And of course, when you've had thousands of individuals, all of those end of ones might be different. But when you line them all up next to each other, all of a sudden patterns emerge, theories emerge. And all of that is leading the way that the next person goes into the program. So for every client, we get smarter about what it takes and where where those nuances are. And that's how we actually have been able to, over the last 10 years, get better and better and faster and faster at, at understanding what are the importance. Like a good example is five years ago, if you came to Miami, we would focus on your sleep. Today, we don't. Not because we don't think sleep is important, but because we figured out how to stack the problems. And if you wake up 
between one and three, then it's a digestive issue. It's not a sleep issue. Whereas if you wake up between four and five, it's a completely different problem. But we have the specificity in our data to see what kind of problem is this. And all of a sudden you can, you can build the stack differently. And that's what helps us give results fast. What is the four to five problem? I've been doing that lately. <laughs> I think we'll, we'll, we'll go there because it really is interesting to see how all of these nuances uh, are on the sleep side um, pairs in um, to how people, people live their lives and not least um, how that impacts uh, everything they do. It's just so fascinating. Talk to me, Nikki, about the study you published and, you know, just leaping off of, you know, what Metis just said. Sure. So, so we took a look, this was, you know, early on, we took a look at um, people with lupus and um, randomized them uh, to the program uh, plus their usual care or usual care alone. And uh, it was a pilot study. Um, we ended up with about uh, 50 people that were randomized. Um, and the results were really, really compelling, very encouraging. Uh, we looked at something called a lupus qual. So that's a validated tool looking at several domains related to health uh, related quality of life. And specifically, again, was designed for lupus. Um, and we saw that uh, across across almost all the domains, we had significant changes and the magnitude of the changes, particularly in fatigue, were incredible. And as you know, fatigue is one of the, you know, most common and debilitating symptoms that people with lupus suffer from. Um, so that was our results were published in uh, 2020. Um, and that really, that was really our first you know, real look at hard look at the data that, that let us know that, you know, this is really something that's, that's impacting people's lives in a really meaningful way. By the way, folks, all of the studies that, that Nikki's mentioned will corral together onto the show notes. So you can go and find links uh, to the studies at the show notes. Um, what about, how about comparing to lupus uh, uh, studies, looking at different drugs? Have you, have so, you, yeah, sure. So the, I can speak to it again, the, the, the magnitude of change again in, in fatigue, I want to point out in particular, but also in, in pain severity, pain interference, um, these, these outpaced the improvement that you see in, in many of the drug studies. Um, some, you know, some of this again is prompted by the fact that the fatigue doesn't seem to really be touched by the drugs in so many patients. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, these were, you know, really marked, marked improvements. So very exciting. And you're, and you're working with diet and lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's funny because I think functional medicine has played a, a huge role in, in my thinking. And I think a lot of, a lot of kudos to, what Jeffrey Bland and, and the team of, of everyone who's been lifting in functional medicine has done over the years. Because when you're coming from the outside, coming into healthcare, 
it's it's actually quite hard to wrap your mind around how things are working. And I really think that functional medicine had, has paved the way for a whole nother way of viewing the body. And I don't think that Miami and other things would even have a shot um, in a in a pre-functional world. So right. Any let's just I want to I want to just turn our attention back to long COVID. We started we started to get into it and um, you're seeing it a lot. Can you just share with me? Uh, and you so you articulated the fact that you're it sounds like you're able to move some people fully out of it and they're back in, into their world. And we talked about what it looks like, you know, an late an immediate onset, late stage autoimmune condition. But um, you're struggling with others. Any anything you want to talk generally speaking and what you see in your data, like what 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 interventions appear to be most broadly useful in this population like how there are people there are clinicians listening to this who are treating folks with long COVID and it's probably you know a, a huge challenge for some of them so I know they're paying attention to what you're learning and there's probably you know individuals with family members or individuals who are suffering with long COVID themselves uh, listening to this podcast so what can you say from your data how would you how would you guide us so I'd say we covered it briefly a little bit before. Um, I would say that one of the biggest things is to pay attention to the dysautonomia, right? I think that um, it's, and and that is related to the, the, the real exercise intolerance yes. for these folks. So um, the, I don't know if you're familiar with Levine protocols for POTS, but we do, we do kind of um, draw from that pretty heavily um, it, with, you know, graded exercise, making sure that the initial exercise is, is often supine, whether that's like a reclined bike or something or swimming, but not upright. Um, and, and having people alternate their days between doing their more aerobic work with, in which heart rate is very closely followed, um, and, and more, you know, gentle weight training. So I, I think that, that, that autonomic piece is really important. We do a lot of special breathing exercises. We've done a lot of, again, I've mentioned before, but the humming and the singing, and we've, we've seen that really help a lot of people. But I do um, think that, that those are the more general pieces that go across the, right. the long COVID population. We are seeing that the same mechanisms that work for an autoimmune population are the mechanisms behind the long COVID patients. And so it's, it's, it's varying in terms of how it shows up, but whether it's the more usual histamines or oxalates or, or specific triggers is less important, but we are seeing the same patterns. And that's what's fascinating because in a way, it gives us an insight that we've never had before. The, the data that will be coming out in long COVID is interesting in the sense that we mentioned earlier that an autoimmune patient has been slow boiling. And yeah. when you've been getting sick over a long period of time, it's also harder to determine certain things. But in these cases, it's like fresh cases, right? All of a sudden, you can actually explore everything. There's a lot of detail that you can capture that you couldn't capture over the patient that has spent a decade getting to that moment. And so 
that's, I think, where yeah. the data that will be coming out in long COVID is most interesting, is that yeah. it will give us insights into the background of the autoimmune um, sort of reflection that we we actually didn't have a chance of even getting close to prior. Um, I guess it's um, it's a it's a very small thing, but I I do think that when when we started this journey with Mount Sinai, it was based on sort of sheer despair in the sense that there was really very little understanding of the population. There was very little understanding of who they were, why they were suffering the way they were, or if anything, if there was interventions to be put into play. And one of the things that has become very clear for us that is the biggest differentiator is really the neuro piece. Um, I don't know if you saw the press release today, but we just acquired a company who was the number one in the MS space um, because it was an expertise that we started to see ourselves lacking as we were going more and more into the long COVID space. Um, one thing that you also asked was, physicians on this call, how, how, how to utilize MIMI, how would someone work with us? And you know, anyone who's referring to us today is really using us as a tool in their toolbox. If they've gone out and done inflammatory testing or anything else, that didn't really reap the results uh, or the results that they were hoping, um, they will refer people to MIMI and, and see if, if we as a team can help people identify things to improve quality of life. We, of course, send you know, reports back to the physician, but it's a, it's a small lift for the physician in the sense that we are sort of a tool in their toolbox the same way as a, a, a test facility is. Um, we don't take a lot of time. Uh, we will very happily um, see uh, any lab work and results that is, is present, but we don't need it. And so we, we can work with um, the physician in, in, a, in a very um, transparent way. And I think because we don't overlap, we don't make any advice on, on drugs, on vaccines, any of the physician-related areas, that's not our expertise. We help people drill down and understand their triggers, and we help them make that behavior change. I just wanted to point out, if anybody missed it, um, Miami's in partnership with Mount Sinai's post-COVID treatment center, and you guys are just working together to tease out what this phenomena of post-COVID. Yeah, so of course we get a lot of our patients referred from Mount Sinai, Mm -hmm. especially because they only have the capacity of, I think, 700 people um, at, the, at the New York Center. So um, that's, that's a given. But I, but I think more so than anything, I love the relationship we have, particularly with Dr. David Petrino, because it's, it's really a center who's been very open and forthright about how many questions are unanswered. And I think it's been very imperative, at least for us as an organization, to not go out and pretend we had a easy solution for COVID long haulers. Yeah. We don't. We, we, we do the hard work with you and we've been able to help people get to better places. But as mentioned, there's just some people where we still don't know how to, how to get them over that um, sort of... Um, tipping point. 
Well, I appreciate you're working on this problem. <laughs> Excuse me. I just want to, I have a couple more questions. Um, I want to go back to, you've brought oxalates and histamine intolerance up um, a couple times in this conversation, both in autoimmunity, but as well as, as, as COVID long haul. Um, are you seeing, is it a relatively common problem in the Miami population? Particularly in the long COVID, more so than in the general autoimmune population. I think the reason that I, I raised those two is just because I think they're often missed. I think people think they eat healthy and then they eat a pokeball, which basically consists of everything uh, a histamine diet shouldn't com comprise of. Um, I think a lot of times when we talk about dietary triggers, people think of it as, you know, the traditional gluten, dairy, something like that. But what we are seeing is that it's often um, these categories that people are completely unaware exist. So right. even people who sort of had ideas that, oh, I shouldn't be doing this and I shouldn't be doing that, but they had no idea why. Right. And so what, what we quite clearly, because it's something we do every day, can see is that, hey, if you're, if you're having smaller reactions to these two or three things, we can actually help you identify what are all the other things that could be in that bucket and how do we then um, sort of get, get you back on track and, and identify. Because again, histamines is not often for an autoimmune population the main trigger, but once you have a main trigger, histamine will always be present. So you sort of need to peel back that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, and both of those, I think, oxalates, you know, stone formers notwithstanding, both of these are about significant gut disrupt disruption. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you agree, Nikki? Hundred percent. Yeah. Autoimmune disease is so related to gut. It's 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 almost crazy that it's not um, better better described. Understood. Yeah. 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 And I also think, to be fair, the way that we've looked at the body, like when I grew up, people were like the appendix, who needs it, right? It was almost like a nuisance for people to have it. And today I think of it as the pantry of the microbiome. It's where you go and store a little for winter or pick it up a little if there's imbalance. We are now talking about the importance of the microbiome and how to balance it. But the pantry is gone. It's like having a house in Florida where the thermostat is broken, neither it's hot or cold. And so I think we've, we've sort of missed the point of how brilliant the body is as a regulator uh, of its own processes. On that note, I just wanna, I, it's just such a compelling conversation, such important work you're doing. I'm, you know, we're just gonna have to come on when you, when you have, when you're ready to share more. <laughs> but Nikki, what do you, you see as, as, you know, the hope for the future of autoimmune disease, you know, uh, COVID long, long haul, you know, and the work you're doing over at, at Miami? Why don't you, why don't you take us home with your sure, final thoughts? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, so, you know, our, our mission really is to transform the health and well-being of people suffering from autoimmune disorders, right? Including long COVID. And, you know, to achieve this, we're, we're leading efforts aimed at like spreading 
awareness to patients and clinicians about the power of lifestyle medicine for those with autoimmunity. You know, it, it doesn't only belong to people with cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Yes. We really want the stakeholders to understand that a one size fits all approach will not work in this area, you know, and the painful trial and error process of so many autoimmune patients that they go through, you know, needs to be replaced with, with self-evidence an N of one approach. So, you know, together with experts like you, Kara, and so many of your colleagues in functional medicine, plus the dedicated research who are out there trying to advance the field, we really want to make personalized diet and lifestyle medicine adjunctive standard of care for those with autoimmune disease. Absolutely. I think that's entirely reasonable and we'll certainly support you in manifesting that. Nikki and Meta, I just want to, again, thank you so much for joining me. Finally, we've been talking about this podcast for years. <laughs> so it's really great to have you. Thank you, Kara. Thank you so much, Kara. As always, thank you for listening to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where our sponsors help bring the very best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. Not everyone can be a sponsor on my platform, and I so appreciate the good work, the relentless research, and the generous support from my friends at Biotics, TA Sciences, and Integrative Therapeutics. These are brands I know and trust in my own clinic and can confidently recommend them to you. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com, tasciences.com, and integrativepro.com, and please tell them you learned about them on New Frontiers. If it's not too much to ask, I would appreciate a thumbs up and a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.